0: That whole generation had been gathered to their fathers. Another generation grew up who knew neither the Lord nor what he had done for Israel. Then the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord and served the Baals. They forsook the Lord, the God of their fathers who had brought them out of Egypt. They followed and worshipped various gods of the peoples around them. They provoked the Lord to anger because they forsook him and served Baal and the Ashtoreths. In his anger against Israel, the Lord handed them over to raiders who plundered them. He sold them to their enemies all around whom they were no longer able to resist. Whenever Israel went out to fight, the hand of the Lord was against them to defeat them, just as he had sworn to them. They were in great distress. Then the Lord raised up judges who saved them out of the hands of these raiders, yet they would not listen to their judges but prostituted themselves to other gods and worshiped them. Unlike their fathers, they quickly turned from the way in which their fathers had walked, the way of obedience to the Lord's commands. Whenever the Lord raised up a judge for them, he was with the judge and saved them out of the hands of their enemies as long as the judge lived. For the Lord had compassion on them as they groaned under those who oppressed and afflicted them. (laughs) But when the judge died, the people returned to ways even more corrupt than those of their fathers, following other gods and serving and worshiping them. They refused to give up their evil practices and stubborn ways. In the book of Judges, we read about 11 such judges. Ten men, one woman. What was a judge? Not the person that we think of today sitting behind a bench in a courtroom. These judges were political leaders. They were spiritual leaders. They were military leaders, all rolled up into one. Samson was... Not the first judge of Israel, but his story might be the best known. You saw a little clip about him. He was actually the last judge over Israel before Samuel the prophet came on the scene. And then Samuel anointed the first king, King Saul, and then King David, the second king. Samson was born to elderly parents who lived out in the wilderness. Perhaps that explains why his name means little son or sonny or sun man. His parents were commanded by God to raise him as a Nazarite. Nazarites were holy men who lived under a special vow to the law. Samson was supposed to drink no alcohol, live out in the desert away from the people, and never cut his hair. Well, he got one of the three. (laughs) He didn't cut his hair until the last few months of his life. But he did drink, and he lived sometimes in the cities and participated in all the wickedness of those cities. Samson was unusually strong, and on top of that, he was hot-tempered. Just think of the incredible hulk in sandals, <laughs> minus the green skin. Samson once killed 1,000 Philistines with the jawbone of a donkey. On another occasion, he tied 300 foxes' tails together by pairs in order to burn up the wheat fields of the Philistines, their enemy. Once, when threatened with capture, he tore the iron gar- gates of a city down off their hinges, carried them a quarter of a mile away up to a hill overlooking the city. This is a big guy, bigger than any of our linebackers today. His demise started with an illicit relationship with the Philistine beauty, Delilah. He couldn't stay away from beautiful women. And Delilah was coaxed by Samson's enemies into asking him the secret of his great strength. He tricked her a couple of times, but eventually gave away a secret. After she got him to sleep, she had the barbers cut off his glorious hair. He became as weak as other men. They gouged out his eyes. They made him a slave to the Philistines so that they could make sport of him. But in the end, both his hair and his strength came back, and Samson avenged himself on the Philistines by knocking down the temple of Dagon, their false god. And 3,000 Philistines died when the temple came crashing down. But Samson died also. Deborah, another judge, this famous judge. She's the only woman judge. The third judge overall. In some ways, she was more like the judges we have today because it says she actually set up kind of a court out under a palm of Deborah. And in this open-air courtroom, she heard the cases of the people and judged between them. All went well until an enemy of the Israelites together uh, came against them. A guy named Jabin assembled his army, the Hazarites, and picked a fight with God's people. Deborah called the army out under the leadership of an Israelite named Barak. But in fear, Barak wanted to know if Deborah was going to go along as they went into battle. She said, well, I will go with you, but since you asked and since you were fearful, a woman is going to gain the victory and not you. And Sisera, who was the commander of the enemy army, he, she said, will die at the hands of a woman, not at your hands. And she was exactly right. When the Hazarite army was defeated, Sisera fled the battlefield on foot He hid in the tent of someone he thought he could trust, but Jael, an Israelite woman, certainly no soldier, coaxed him into sleep with a draft of warm milk, then killed him by driving a tent peg through his temple. Pretty gruesome. (laughs) That was the end of Sisera, and that's how a woman killed this general. That's why this lesson is called A Few Good Men and Women, because women are part of this story. Now, the one I want to focus on here in a few minutes tonight is Gideon. Gideon's the third judge, and uh, his name means cutter or feller of trees. He was a farmer, not a soldier. His call by God to lead God's people was a total surprise to him. Uh, He was concerned about their plight. He was crying out in uh, prayer to God like everyone else for deliverance. But uh, he wondered where God was. One day he was out threshing his wheat and you need to understand what this situation looked like. Because normally when you thresh wheat, what do you do? You spread out a great big piece of material, uh, and it may be as big as this whole stage area. And you go out where it's kind of windy, and you've mashed down all the wheat that you brought in, and you've broken the heads away from the rest of the stuff called the chaff. And you take this fork, and you throw everything up into the air. And the wind blows away all the light stuff, and the grain Falls to the ground because it's heaviest and it doesn't blow away. So after you've done this over and over again out in this middle of this big open area, you eventually get all of your grain at the bottom and all the chaff has blown away. But Gideon is so afraid that he's down in a wine vat doing this. A wine vat's not very big, about the size maybe of a hot tub or something we might compare to today, maybe six or eight feet across, and he's down there where you normally crush the grapes and everything. And he's trying to do this job that takes a big space and a lot of wind in a place where there is no wind. And it's not working very well, but he does it because he's afraid. He's afraid of the Midianite raiders who keep coming in. Our text tonight is in Judges 6, starting with verse 7. When the Israelites cried to the Lord because of Midian, they sent a prophet who said, This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. I brought you up out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. I snatched you from the power of Egypt, from the hand of all your oppressors. I drove them from before you and gave them uh, you their land. I said to you, I am the Lord your God. Do not worship the gods of the Amorites in whose land you live, but you have not listened to me. The angel of the Lord came and sat down under the oak and oprah that belonged to Joash Ibizrite, where his son Gideon was threshing wheat in a wine press to keep it from the Midianites. And when the angel of the Lord appeared to Gideon, he said, The Lord is with you, mighty warrior. <laughs> but sir Gideon replied, If the Lord is with us, why has all this happened to us? Where are all his wonders that our fathers told us about when they said, Did not the Lord bring us up out of Egypt? But now the Lord has abandoned us and put us into the hand of Midian. The Lord turned to him and said, Go in the strength you have and save Israel out of Midian's hand. Am I not sending you? But Lord Gideon asked, How can I save Israel? My clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my family. The Lord answered, I will be with you, and you will strike down all the Midianites together. (laughs) Mighty warrior. So as God commanded, Gideon cut down his father's, apparently his town's Asherah pole, the place where they worshiped their false god, Baal. Gideon then made an altar to God on the same spot, sacrificing one of his father's bulls on it. The next morning, the people are angry. They wanted to kill Gideon, but his father turned them away, and this is when Gideon was given the name Jerubbaal, which means let Baal plead. In other words, let Baal take up the case if that's a problem. Within a few months, Gideon was called upon to raise up an army of Israelites to fight the humongous Midianite army, numbering about 135,000 men. At first, 32,000 rallied to his battle cry. That may sound like a lot, but I can imagine the Gideon saying, uh, that's about one-fourth of what the enemy has. Doesn't seem like enough. But then God comes and adds to the problem. He says 32,000 is way too many, that I don't need this many in my army. If I'm going to get the credit for this, I want you to tell everybody that's frightened to go home. So 22,000 of them leave. Gideon is left with 10,000 now. Now he's about a thirteenth the size of the other army. And God says, that's still too many. I want you to take them down and have them all drink from the stream. And those who hold up water uh, in their hands and lap out of it like a dog, you save them. Everyone else, send them home. And now the army is reduced to 300 300 against 135,000 Midianites. Now, I don't know if that's uh, an easy figure for you to figure out, but that's about 450 to (laughs) 1. That's pretty bad. If I had been Gideon, I would have had second thoughts. I would have thought, God, what are you doing? And so he tested God. He laid a fleece before God twice. First time he asked God, Uh, to make the fleece wet and keep everything else around it dry. God did so. Then he put it out again. He says, keep the fleece dry while everything else gets wet. God did that too. He's convincing Gideon, I am with you. You will win this battle. And God understood his fears because even the night before the battle, he sent him down into the enemy camp and he said, I want you to hear what they're talking about. So he snuck down in there and he heard one guy saying how fearful he was because God had given this battle to Gideon and everyone in the camp was panicking, melting in fear before him. God gives Gideon an unusual battle plan. He tells him to take up for each soldier a pitcher, clay jar, in other words, with a torch inside it, shielded so the light wasn't escaping, and also have a trumpet. And he sends him out with those weapons, a pitcher of clay, a torch, and a trumpet. And he says, "When you go out, surround the enemy camp, it' is given signal we 're all going to break the clay jars. the lights will be visible to everybody then the torches will be shining all around them, and then we will blow our trumpets, and we will shout as loud as we can a sword for the Lord and for Gideon. Now, there are many evidences of Gideon 's timidity. Uh, he threshed his wheat in a wine press. he was surprised at the angel's greeting, Hail mighty warrior." He requested a sign from God's angel that he was actually speaking for God. He also went out and obeyed him about tearing down the altar to Baal and burning the Asherah pole or building an altar. And But yet he took ten guys along and he did it at night. This is all signs of his fear. But Gideon's story is just a glimpse of a bigger story. God won that battle handily. The Midianites were all panicked and they killed each other And the the soldiers of God, all they do is clean up the few that were still left. And they won a mighty victory. But there's a bigger story going on. There's a story of God always coming through for his people. A pattern of trusting God, following God. But the people had trouble doing that for very long. As soon as the next judge died, the next generation left the Lord, became just like their neighbors or worse. And God tested them by sending their enemies against them. And the people cried out to God again. God sent another deliverer. And the whole cycle went through again and again for 115 years through 11 times in the book of Judges alone, maybe more times than that. It was like they weren't learning anything, at least like they forgot the lessons learned. What is the obvious application for us? Is not our life sometimes like that? We have a great spiritual experience. We hear uh, somebody talk on the radio, or maybe in a in a worship service, or maybe we hear a concert and the music just moves us. Maybe there is a moment in time, a a month or so even, where we feel really close to God and we make commitments. We we are sincere. We surrender, and then we get busy. And we. We kind of ignore things and we leave God alone for a while. Or maybe we just don't tend the fire very much that has been started in us and it starts to grow cooler and eventually can become cold. It's an age old problem that comes back generation after generation. If there's not somebody there to lead us, somebody to inspire us, somebody to keep us on fire, then it's very easy to grow cold in our faith. Fear is a big factor in our lives. Fear is normal, but we dare not give in to our fear or we will do nothing for God. We must live by faith and trust in God, not by fear. Early on when God called Gideon to overthrow his enemies and to be the mighty warrior God called him to be, God told him to do something that we all need to hear. It's in Judges 6.14. It's when the Lord said to Gideon, go in the strength that you have. Go in the strength that you have. Now, what What kind of strength did Gideon have? Not very much. What kind of faith did he have? Not very great. And yet God said, if you will go in the strength that you have, it's enough. Because I'm enough. God is enough for even just a little bit of faith. Jesus said, if you have faith as small as a mustard seed, you can move a mountain. You can say to that mountain, go, be thrown into the sea, and it will be done. So take the faith that you have as weak and as vulnerable and haphazard as it may seem and go in the strength that you have. Use that faith today. Build on that faith. Fan that little spark of faith into stronger, stronger flame as you learn to trust and serve God more and more. I have a friend that I've been trying to help for a long time. We spent a lot of time together in the past. Seems like he pops up every time there is trouble. But otherwise, I don't see much. It seems at times that that, that, uh, he draws close to God. He seems willing to do whatever God wants him to do to get his act together. And then he falls off the edge somewhere again. And I don't see him for months or maybe even years. And then suddenly, when he's in trouble again, I get another call. He contacts me and needs help. I feel kind of like one of those judges. (laughs) Got to come in and save the day. And then as soon as the day is okay things, crisis have passed, then you're forgotten. Is that the way that we live our faith sometimes? On again, off again, hot, cold, close to God, then far from God. I would be the last person to judge anybody here. I would be the last person to condemn anybody, but let me ask you a few questions about the God you believe in. Is your God a God of convenience? Is the God that you worship and obey a God that you worship and obey whenever it's convenient for you, but not at other times? Is he a God that you worship when you don't have a better offer, when you don't have something more exciting to do? Something that maybe is demanding your attention can draw you away from God easily because he's only there when it's convenient for you to worship him. Is your God a God of crisis? For a lot of people, he is get really down in the foxhole, then you call on God. But when things are going fine, he's easy to ignore. If things become critical, if things become traumatic, then all of a sudden you're this religious person, you're this spiritual person that you weren't before the crisis. Suddenly your prayers become more pressing, more vivid, more often. Is your God a God of comfort? Is he someone you love to call on when you need peace and reassurance? Maybe a family member or a friend died. Maybe you've lost something dear to you, like a job or your house. Is God somebody that you lean on when you really need somebody to lean on? Is he a God of comfort only because you really don't want him poking around in your life the rest of the time? You just call on him when you're desperate or when you need some peace. Gideon's God was a God of courageous trust, a God to whom Gideon entrusted his entire life. He did not have, I don't think, any more faith than we do, but when it was called on, he responded with this courageous trust. He said, okay, I will go in the strength that I have. I will go with the God that I know I can trust, even though I'm not a mighty warrior, even though I've never done this before. Gideon's God was a God of surrender, a a Gideon's surrender. He was a God to whom Gideon surrenders his entire life. And I can imagine he was plenty scared when he went up against those Midianites, but he resigned himself to the fact that God had called him to lead, and even if his army was a mere 300 men armed with torches, clay pots, and trumpets, it would be enough. Don't you think about that for a minute before we close. If you have a torch lit inside a clay pot and a trumpet to carry, and the idea is for you to break the clay pot so the torch can be shown and then blow the trumpet and shout as loud as you can, a sword for the Lord and for Gideon, there wouldn't be any way that you'd have a weapon in your hand too, would there? you only have two hands. Now I may have had a sword strapped on their side, I don't know, but the Bible doesn't really say that. The point is that they go into this battle completely at God's mercy with the tools, the weapons that God has given them. And they trust him for whatever results may come. And as they broke their jars, as they blew their trumpets, as they shouted a sword for the Lord and for Gideon, God routed their enemies. The Midianites panicked because they thought there were thousands of Israelites surrounding them when there weren't. There were 300. And they ran around in circles and killed each other. As servants of God today, we may feel just as vulnerable, just as weaponless as they did, but we are not vulnerable. We are not weaponless when we take our stand in God. So I'm going to say to you tonight, servant of God, go in the strength that you have. Father, I pray that you would bless us uh, with our weak faith. We pray like that, man did who approached Jesus at the time Lord I do believe but help me in my unbelief help me when, when uh, I'm overwhelmed by my circumstances help us when we are fearful when we are anxious when we don't see how a victory could possibly come from the situation we're in help us to trust you with this courageous trust that Gideon had help us to, to uh, surrender to you to whatever your plan may be, whether we understand it or not, help us to walk with you, to go forward with you, to trust you for the results as we serve you and as we obey you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I don't know if.